From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's now considered the most destructive wildfire in Colorado's recorded history. One month later, the cause of the Marshall Fire remains elusive. We'll find out what investigators are focused on. Then, working to make sure people have access to a basic necessity, safe drinking water. Plus, the pandemic continues to take a toll on mental health. Improving it is now a top priority. For example, Children's Hospital Colorado just hired its first mental health in chief. We'll talk with her about what's happening with kids at this stage in the pandemic. And we'll hear from a local restaurant owner who's adding mental well-being to the menu for his employees. And later, what do you do with a wall of ice? You climb it, of course. I call the Erie Ice Park the gravitational epicenter of ice climbing in North America. I give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Marshall Fire is now considered the most destructive wildfire ever recorded in Colorado. Fire's moving through the property and it's going to be moving into some homes. I'm going to need additional units. It started a month ago, just a small grass fire in Boulder County, but the flames quickly fed on vegetation baked dry by months and months of drought and unseasonably warm weather. Wind gusts over 100 miles per hour scattered embers and pushed flames into suburban neighborhoods in Louisville and Superior. I, just, I have one structure that's now uh, on fire, and I'm unsure just because of the wind and smoke. I can't really see around me. 38 minutes after firefighters arrived, the fire had mutated into an urban inferno. Tens of thousands of residents evacuated. Two people likely died in the fire. More than 1,000 homes were destroyed. Uh, we now have fire on both sides of Marshall Road, and didn't copy there, both north and south, and it's pushing east hey, back. Here to tell us about the investigation into the cause of the Marshall Fire is CPR climate and environment editor Joe Wirtz. Joe, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So what have investigators said about the possible cause of the Marshall Fire so far? Well, you know, not much. Uh, You know, once the Marshall Fire was extinguished and fire crews, you know, moved from like an an active emergency to the long-term recovery mode, information about the fire pretty much started drying up. What we do know is that investigators are, are, are working the fire like a crime. They're, they're, uh, we talk to them and they tell us they're casting a wide net into all the possible causes. And we do know for sure that they're looking at three specific uh, potential causes. One is human activity, two, underground coal fires, and three, uh, down power lines. Talk more about those downed power lines. In the yeah. early hours of the fire, they were considered a likely cause of the blaze, right? But right. investigators backpedaled. And now say that's just not the case. Yeah, that's right. Well, sort of. <laughs> we've oh. listened, yeah, we've listened to hours of dispatch audio from the day of the fire. Uh, fire crews, um, you know, on the radio were, were reporting that they see a downed power line in the area. That's why uh, the Boulder County Sheriff Joe Pelly initially said the power lines could have sparked the fire. 
But, you know, he walked that back pretty quickly after, uh, you know, after the fire started. Excel Energy operates the power lines in that area, and they say none of their lines were, you know, were knocked down in the wind and that the down power lines were telecommunications lines. But we talked to the two companies that run, uh, you know, the communication lines in that area, and they say they don't have any wires down in that area. Uh, so, you know, this week we talked to Boulder County Sheriff's officials, and they said they are still investigating um, the possibility that power lines sparked the fire. I see. Uh, investigators have also searched property owned by 12 tribes, a religious sect. What have they found there? Well, we don't know. We know they executed uh, some search warrants there, but those search warrants are sealed. We do know that the police seized the property for a while and cordoned it off and wouldn't let anybody near it. We also know that fire crews did respond to a man burning debris, you know, trash and other things, on the property uh, days before the fire. Uh, firefighters who responded thought that fire was under control and left. We also know there was a viral Twitter video that you know purports to show open burning around the time that the Marshall Fire started. Here's the thing with that video. The timing of that video hasn't been authenticated, and, and some of the details don't quite match some of what we know uh, about the start of the fire. Now, there's also been discussion about an underground coal fire as a possible ignition yeah. source. What do we know about that possibility? Well, it has happened before in different parts of the state. Investigators say they're looking into it among the possibilities here. Coal mining, you know, used to be this major industry in Colorado, and the coal in these abandoned underground mines can spontaneously ignite. Um, and when, when they do, they can burn for, for decades, even as much as like 100 years. So these underground fires, we know they can and have started uh, above ground fires. Colorado has 38 of these that they're actively monitoring, and, and, and there's two of those in the area. Uh, regulators say those are low-risk fires, but Nine News uh, reported this week they found some records that show that uh, one of those fires in the area at least uh, sparked a small wildfire uh, in that same, same area in 2005. So it's been a month since the fire started. Is it unusual that investigators still don't know what cause? No, not at all. See, you know, these wildfire investigations can take months or longer. The, the Marshall Fire is complex. You know, the high winds that fuel that fire that day make make the investigation even more complicated. It, it, it scatters things around and makes it hard to understand how the fire moved and how it evolved. It makes it complicated. Um, it's also worth noting that it's been more than a year since Colorado's two largest fires. Those happened in 2020. It's been more than a year. Investigators still aren't sure what caused those fires, even though they're pretty sure that humans are responsible. Um, it's also possible that the Marshall Fire was, was sparked by multiple things, right? Multiple things triggered hmm. that fire. Um, it's also possible well, investigators never find out. Um, CPR recently did an investigation that showed, uh, you know, uh, fire investigators failed to, t failed to figure out what caused or, who, you know, who caused, you know, the initial spark in more than half of the largest human-caused fires in Colorado, you know, between 2000 and 2018. Yeah. Well, with the focus turning to rebuilding now and people getting their lives back in order, is it even important to know what caused the Marshall Fire? It is. You know, first, you know, knowing what caused the fire is key to preventing another one from happening in the future. Um, second, there are criminal charges, you know, and hundreds of millions of dollars in liability claims for lost businesses, you know, destroyed or damaged homes, infrastructure and the open space in Boulder County. And it's also, you know, knowing the cause is important for people affected by the fire. You know, it helps the community heal. 
helps people recover and rebuild their lives. You know, we talk to investigators and, and they say um, they know all this and, and they're, they're, they're working, you know, as fast as they can to try to find a cause. Yeah. Thanks for this update, Joe. Yeah, thank you. Joe Wirtz is the climate and environment editor at CPR News. You can read a detailed story about the ongoing Marshall Fire investigation at CPR.org. When we come back, working to ensure people have access to a basic necessity that's easy to take for granted. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Denver's love affair with trains is a story of shared dreams and a city on the rise. I think Cal's vision was to build the best rail system in the country. It's also a story of disappointment. It's the commuter rail line that may be finished in time for your grandkids to use. CPR's newest podcast shows how the Denver area went all in on trains and what happened when the plan jumped the track. Ghost Train, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's talk about two things that seem very simple. Yes, that is a toilet. And now... Of course, water running in a sink. Those things seems simple, perhaps an afterthought even. But according to the United Nations, one in three people worldwide lack access to safe drinking water. Two out of five don't have basic hand-washing facilities, and hundreds of millions lack any kind of toilets. Those are problems a Colorado nonprofit, Water for People, is working to solve. I'm joined now by the group's CEO, Eleanor Allen. Welcome. Thanks, Nathan. Happy to be here. You're a civil engineer, so you have a professional interest in things like water systems, but there's a more personal reason you got involved in this cause, isn't there? Tell me about Maria. Yes. A very personal Maria was uh, the grandchild of neighbors in the Dominican Republic when I was a Peace Corps volunteer. And I played with Maria every day. She was uh, three years old. And one day she was sick with uh, diarrhea. And a couple of days later, she actually died. Mm. And it was shocking because I had never been around death before, and especially not of a child, and especially not from contaminated water, which was an area I was actually working in. So I felt personally responsible that how could I have prevented Maria's death? And that really was a, um, a turning point in my career to work, dedicate my, my life to improving water quality and helping save lives. So she drank tainted water and and got sick and and died. Yes. Yes. So water can give life and it also can, you know, cause death. And it's um, a fine balance, but something that we as humans, we know how to solve that problem, yet it's still so prevalent in the world. Water for People works in Africa, India, and in several countries in Latin America. Are there two or three common roadblocks that are making it difficult to get people such basic services as water? There are, uh, and the most common is uh, people. So just in the case of Maria, this is 
that the technical solution, being a good engineer, we like technical solutions. We know how to do that. The technical solution is you can treat the water and everyone can have safe water. But it's more complicated because it involves politics, it involves money, and mostly involves political will of our, our leaders and our politicians saying, you know, everyone does deserve safe drinking water. And we're going to make this a national priority and we're going to we're going to fund this adequately, not only for the health of our citizens, but also it's the foundation of sustainable development to have services for for families, but also for businesses and for schools and for hospitals. I, I'm thinking about the cost in many cases here. These are rural areas. You're talking about having, for instance, to, to lay pipe for long distances. Somebody has to make a significant initial investment, and somebody then needs to have money to buy parts and maintain the facilities. Um, that seems very interconnected, um, that you have to have governments who are willing to actively participate, right? Yes. And so in um you know, pretty much everywhere in the world, it is a municipal service like we have here in Denver. You know, Denver Water is my service provider and mm -hmm. um, other governments do provide those services or should, and they have, they have not yet gotten there. So in our model at Water for People, we partner with government. We have an agreement that will help co-fund the infrastructure uh, development part. So what we call the capital phase, putting in the pipes and the um, pumps, et cetera, whatever's needed to get water to communities and homes. And then we work with the community to educate on the cost of that service. There's always a cost, especially on, on um, operation and maintenance, whether it be spare parts or disinfectant if the water is not potable, and then um, work on creating that value that it's worth paying for that water versus getting sick or it's worth paying for the water versus walking two hours to the stream that doesn't have safe water. Uh, so part of that co-financing is government, typically, mm -hmm. especially for the infrastructure, but then the ongoing um, you know, service is the same as you and I pay we, a water bill. We pay for what we use and we value that, that, that water at home and we don't have to um, right. go walking for it or searching for it. Well, and, and speaking of walking for it, you, you describe the lack of water and of toilets as an issue that's particularly important for women. And you mentioned in a TED Talk you gave in 2016 that just walking to get the water is such an impact for women. Can you explain that a bit more? Yes, it is a huge impact for women and children, particularly, um, and some men, but mo mostly falls to women and children. So if you don't have water service at your home or even you know down the street in your community, you're going to go walk to where the water is, which is, you know, often a um, stream or a creek or a hand dug well or hand dug pond, uh, and that can be, you know, hours each way. And then sometimes you got to wait in line when you're there because other people are going to that same water point and then walk back home. So it's a chronic um, issue all over the world of people walking spending a good chunk of their lives walking for water and then carrying it home. And water's heavy. A five-gallon jug is 40 pounds. So whether you put mm. it on your head, which I mentioned in my tight talk, that's a lot of weight on your spine. Or if you're carrying it in your arms, I mean, it's one thing to carry a backpack, but this isn't, you know, the way it works. It's carried usually either one in each hand or on your head. And yet, you know, I'm thinking about you you creating these facilities and bringing this to to these areas. You're you're not just walking into these villages and saying, "Here, here's a toilet. Here, here's water supply." You're you're requiring people to put money in the game, right? Yes, 
And I mean, it's a it's a long term process. So first, we water for people. All our employees where we work in our nine countries are all local um, to the to those communities, really. And so we have uh, communities that will come and ask. Um, typically, they go to the mayor and say, "We really want services, better services in our community." And then the mayor will come to us um, because we're known in those countries. So then we'll go and we'll start working with the community and, and explain how we work. And our model, we call everyone forever. It's about getting access to everyone, but it's also about making sure that service lasts forever. So that means training operators, maintenance workers, explaining the true cost of service and the um, commitment of the community. And what we've seen is it really, the leaders in the community really take forward this cause for their community um, like I can just share an example of a woman in Rwanda, Solange, she would walk two hours each way to the water point and back and said, you know, enough of this and started petitioning on behalf of her community and gathering um, collective action in her community to bring water services and then became, you know, part of the first uh, water committee that worked uh, with our um, water for people team in Rwanda and just, um, you know, did a master plan, like here's how we'll do the, the water distribution system. And every community is different. Some want, only want community water points, but often even in the poorer countries where we work, people want a connection to their home. So the, the community will pay for the main uh, pipe in the road, but each family will save up and pay for that connection to their home. Yeah. And um, they'll work through the whole construction phase, but also that's all about the education of behavior change you know, why is it important to have safe water? Why, um, what else you can do with your time, which, you know, is about working typically and bringing livelihood and lifting families out of poverty. But we work, we do this over a long period of time with community members who are leaders in their community and to shift the whole community model. And, and just to be clear, the, these aren't the types of toilets typically that many Coloradans think of, right? Is that, or, or are they? Oh, so I was talking about waters. Let's go to toilets. One of my favorite topics. Yeah, yeah. No, they are not. So we work in areas, uh, and this is most of the world, by the way, that's non-sewered. So sewers are wonderful things. I'm a wastewater engineer by training. They're also very expensive and high operational maintenance costs. And by the way, use a lot of water when you flush your toilet, right? So um, places that have water scarcity issues, there's just not that water available and there's not that funding available to build all that infrastructure. So imagine you know, a rural, uh, rural Colorado, there's uh, an outhouse or a um, latrine with either a pit or a tank. Yeah. So the, the toilets in all the countries where we work are um, either have, you know, some have a poor flush, which is you pour a little bit of water down to flush it and it goes into a tank, like a septic tank, or some are just squat toilets um, or a sit on toilet, but it's just into a pit. So that toilet part of our work is very personalized to the, um, to the places where we work and the families, what they want. But the big key thing in, in getting people to actually want to use a toilet is making it a nice place to go. So it doesn't have, hmm. doesn't stink. We've all been to those gross toilets, probably hiking or camping. <laughs> where we're like, I don't want to go in there. I'd rather yeah. go outside. But keeping the flies out, and these are generally warm climates, right? Keeping flies out, the stink out, and that's um, disease out. And then having, um, you know, just a nice place to go. So that's a huge yeah. part of what we do and having people value those toilets. But, uh, you know, again, you know, thinking back to um, that little girl, 
um, it was people going to the bathroom essentially outside. There was no place for them to go. And then it rained and then the you know, that all just went into the river as well. So I can see how vital it is to get these to places that need them. Yeah. I mean, in the case of Maria, it was interesting because people actually had toilets, but often they were piped directly to the river, which is where people oh. got the water. So right. that cycle was not isolated. The, the waste was not contained and treated, which is what we practice. We empty the pits, we empty the tanks and bring them to little small treatment plants and repurpose those biosolids, which are great fertilizer and um, fuel, cooking fuel, by the way. But when they're all connect, interconnected to the river and let the river take it away, and that's the same river people use to get water, that's where people get sick. And often people don't even know that, right? So the education is really key to changing behaviors and having people understand what is making them sick. Yeah. I, so a lot of what you're doing sounds like it can be a huge success, but are, are there communities where this just doesn't work financially? And, and how do you address that? You know, financially, um, very few where it doesn't work. Um, mm. It's about shifting the value of money or the value of things that are valuable to you as the customer. What um, do you mean? You know, basically, even in the most rural communities, people have cell phones, they have luxuries, they were or investments that would seem a luxury, but it's essential to their life. And so we find that when people understand the value of a nice toilet to their health and to their well-being, as well as safe water, it is not something they can't afford. Now, that being said, even in small communities, there's a level of, um, there's people who have more money than less, and, and often communities will uh, su subsidize themselves. So the, the people who have more money will help pay for the poorest of the poor. But it's much more um, taking care of each other in, in, in low-income countries than, than, frankly, I see in this country. Um, mm. So the affordability is not as much as a concern once people understand what they're paying for and they value that. Has the pandemic slowed your efforts um, and the efforts of other groups to, to bring these services to the world? Um, slowed and also sped up. So I would say in the beginning, you know, there was a lot about hand washing. Remember when we yeah. didn't know about the aerosols? So we really got a lot of attention in our work because what was sort of not super interesting um, to the world, hand washing, oh. water, toilets became really interesting. So that was really good. It gave us a lot of momentum. And then what has also sped up our work. Um, so we were slowed down a bit when people couldn't you know, access each other. But then as water became part of essential services and our uh, the service providers were frontline workers. They became part of the education processes, how COVID has spread, how COVID can be prevented, and really working a lot closer with um, community health workers and ministries of health and in um, those in the communities where we work to help stop the spread of COVID. So a double-edged sword, but I think overall, it has actually helped us uh, grow in importance to why this, you know, uh, basic services are really important to everyone in the world. Yeah, hand washing is important. Yeah, things like that. Yeah. Uh, the UN has listed access to water and sanitation for everyone, um, and they've made it 2030 as one of their development yes. goals. Um, how realistic is that to think this worldwide problem can be solved in the next few years? 2030 seems so far away, but it, it really isn't. Yeah, sometimes it seems like it's right around the corner. Right. I believe, um, so the sustainable development goals, there are 17. One is uh, number six, precisely, is uh, sustainable water and sanitation for all. 185 countries signed on. Yes, they committed to doing this. 
Now, water is ahead of sanitation. Typically, communities will get water services to, to their citizens um, uh, before they figure out the sanitation because you just you need water to live. And frankly, it's easier. Right. Um, so I think several countries will reach the water uh, sustainable development goal number six, 6.1, and then sanitation will lag in many countries because um, safely managed sanitation, so all those things we touched on earlier, it's not only collecting it, it's safely managing it, which is about you know, making sure it's transported and treated. And that is, it is more complex. So in my, you know, what I imagine the world in 2030, not every country will have um, uh, safe water for uh, everyone who lives there, but many countries will get, will reach or, or not get really, if not get really close to that goal, and then sanitation will be lagging behind. Yeah. Eleanor, I really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. Thank you, Nathan. Wonderful. Eleanor Allen is CEO of Water for People, a nonprofit organization based in Colorado that's working to bring sanitation and clean water to people around the world. After the break, making mental health a priority, from restaurants to hospitals. The pandemic is redefining how we take care of ourselves. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Read with Colorado Matters. For Turn the Page, we've chosen All That Is Secret by Patricia Raybon, a mystery set when the KKK loomed large. A young black theologian gets a telegram to come back to Colorado and find out why her father was killed. But she could be a victim herself. Read All That Is Secret and meet the author virtually February 8th. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. A lot of workers faced mental health struggles before 2020, before the pandemic. Since then, the challenges have only grown. But as CPR health reporter John Daly discovered, one Colorado workplace has found an innovative way to help. You could call it a pandemic triple whammy. Economic uncertainty, plus stressful work, plus plenty of interactions with all kinds of people. There aren't too many of us who've faced that quite like folks who work in restaurants. Perfect. You are excellent. Come on this way and I'll take you to your table. Folks like server Nikki Perry. Um, but it is totally nerve-wracking sometimes because all of my tables I'm interacting with aren't wearing their masks. Perry works at French 75, a restaurant in downtown Denver. She's 23, a DJ and music producer, and worries not just about her own health. I'm not as nervous about myself. I'm more nervous about my partner. He's disabled. He doesn't have the greatest immune system. Nikki Perry is not alone in feeling that anxiety. After the initial shutdown, the restaurant was having problems finding employees, as was everybody, says chef and owner Frank Bonanno. We put a survey monkey out and pay was number three. It was mental health was number one that employees wanted security and mental health and then pay. His company, Bonanno Concepts, runs 10 Denver restaurants, including French 75. He says it has good insurance, but it doesn't usually cover mental health well. Most psychologists and psychiatrists are out of pocket, and we were looking for a way to make our employees happy. That, says his wife and co-owner Jacqueline, was when they had a revelation. 
Let's hire a full-time mental health clinician. I know of no other restaurants that are doing this, groups or individual restaurants. It's um, a pretty big hey leap everyone. of faith. I'm Kiana, I'm the wellness director here at Banano Concepts, and I'm gonna teach you a hand stretch today. So first things first, interlace. Kiana Torres Flores got the job. She'd worked as a licensed professional counselor and in community mental health, but jumped at the chance to create something new. Uh, I think especially in the restaurant and hospitality industry, that stress bucket is really full a lot of the times. I think having someone in this kind of capacity just can be really useful. Flores has led group sessions and mediation. She's taught the company's 400 employees techniques to cope with stress and put on Santa's mental health workshop to help with holiday-related sadness and grief. She's done one-on-one -on -one counseling and helped a few employees get more specific therapy. Not only is there help, but it's literally five feet away from you. <laughs> and it's free and it's confidential. Flores is six months into this new adventure. The owners say her presence gives them a competitive advantage and hope it helps with retention of restaurant employees who often work crazy hours, can be prone to substance use issues, but have a grinded out mentality. It has been a really important option and a resource for our team right now. Abby Hoffman is the general manager of French 75. She gives the effort high marks. I think the conversation really started around the death of Anthony Bourdain, knowing how important mental health and caring for ourselves was. The passing of the charismatic Bourdain who openly struggled with addiction and mental health troubles, resonated with many restaurant workers. Then, Hoffman says, came the pandemic. We were again able to say, this is so stressful and scary and we need to be able to talk about this. She speaks for an entire industry. A recent survey found a third of Colorado restaurants got requests for mental health services from employees in the past year. More than three out of four report a rise in customer aggression towards them. Jacqueline Bonanno says Flores has given ways to help employees cope, no small thing. We have a generation of people who have been dealing with mass shooter drills, who have now gone through a pandemic, who were fired en masse from their jobs. And if, as a society, we can't provide those resources, then maybe as an employer, we can. One member of that generation, server Nikki Perry, says she's grateful for her employers who care about us and see us as humans. I think that's great. And I think other places should catch up. <laughs> and if that happens, she says, it could be a positive legacy from an otherwise tough time. I'm John Daly, CPR News. We've all felt the toll two years of the pandemic has had in our mental health. Good or bad, COVID-19 has put a big spotlight on how our emotional well-being has suffered. As more organizations like that one make improving health, mental health a top priority, Children's Hospital Colorado has just hired its first mental health in chief, Dr. Kron Lee Liao, to lead the hospital's pediatric mental health efforts. Dr. Liao, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I want to talk a little bit about um, kids and the stress that they're facing um, on top of what everyone is facing uh, with mental health during COVID-19. What does the current pediatric mental health landscape look like? Well, Nathan, it's, I'm going to speak as a, a child psychiatrist and a mental health expert and leader here mm. in Colorado, but also as a parent of, uh, of three kids, uh, all in one decade, different decade of life. 
mean, nationally, we're seeing a youth mental health crisis, um, both here in Colorado locally as well as across the country. I used to say one in five kids suffered um, from a mental health challenge, and now I think in some populations we would say upwards of half of the of kids that we're seeing really suffering with depression, anxiety, difficulties with learning and friendships. So it's, it's really become uh, extremely prevalent um, across the country. Are we talking kids of all ages here, like like young children and older teens alike? Yeah, it is has really been dramatic to watch over the last decade. Um, and the kids that we're seeing, they're coming in at younger ages with more severe mental health challenges. Um, we have upwards of uh, this week, 30 um, kids across our emergency departments in the system um, of all ages, starting with younger children and school-aged children, all the way to adolescents and young adults um, really suffering from uh, mental health crises. I mean, can you talk about some of those? What What are you seeing? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, it is a trend that we've been seeing nationally over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, the rates of, of suicidal thoughts um, and, uh, and depression, as well as really high rates of anxiety that's really impairing um, in, in kids' ability to do the things that you would naturally love and want children to be doing, which is being able to go to school, make friends, learn, yeah. um, excel, and, and really engage in the things that they love to do outside of school as well. And we're seeing that mental health conditions and challenges are really getting in the way of that. What was the tipping point for Children's Hospital to take the step and create your position? That is to say, as you said, mental health has been a challenge for decades. Absolutely. I think it's, I mean, I, I would applaud Children's Hospital of Colorado in really being a leader. They sounded the alarm, I think, back in May about the pediatric mental health crisis and then and the Children's Hospital Association Academy of Pediatrics and Child Psychiatry as well also sounded that alarm this November. I mean, you, when you see over 50% of the kids that you're seeing in your healthcare system have mental health um, challenges as, as number one or number two of the face problems that they're facing, you really want to rethink how we think about children's healthcare in general. And I think what Children's has done is invest in making sure that we have mental health experts sitting at all the tables in which when we have redesigning systems, having people who really understand families and kids across the developmental ages, but also people who understand all the other systems that children are a part of, education and primary care and community health. So, I, I mean, I feel very humble and honored to be joining this team, but I also know that this is something that every children's hospital is struggling with across the country. Yeah. It seems that healthcare and, and mental health care have been separated. I'm thinking a child's cancer diagnosis jumpstarts such a massive effort to cure, but, but what happens when a child is diagnosed with a mental illness. Yeah, Nathan, that's such a good point. And I think about sort of like how quickly um, technology and innovations in care and diagnostics have advanced um, in other realms of healthcare. And when I think about how fragmented and separate the mental health care systems are and how they have been underfunded and underinvested and underdeveloped over the last few decades as compared to our physical health infrastructure, right? Um, it's shocking. Um, and as a physician, I think I sit in the middle of that, like basically huge uh, crevasse or cliff between these two care systems. For families, if you're looking just for a therapist or a counselor or some extra support or guidance for your child, you have to navigate a system where there's not enough service, there are not enough providers, 
Um, and it's tough to navigate versus, you know, in the other care systems, you go to the best cancer center, you go to the best cardiac center, you go to the best, you know, a diabetes center. And, and we want that to be part of what we think about um, for mental health as well. It should be integrated in everything that we do. And also children should have access to the best in class treatments and, and diagnoses and supports that they need where they need them, which is for us, it's also not in the hospital. It's actually at home, in schools, with their primary care doctors in their local neighborhoods and communities. So we're working to build a system that really works better for kids and families and integrates mental health as central to their health and well-being. As a dad, I I know that technology has been a, been a huge help for me and my family during the pandemic. I mean, there have been days where I have to leave my daughter with her tablet longer than I like, fully knowing other parents. And news reports say that's a that's not ideal. How does all of this factor into a child's mental health? I think of all the kids like mine watching videos on their laptops and tablets these past few years while their parents are working. Is is that really that bad to do that? Oh, Nathan, do you have another hour? Because we can talk about that as well. I mean, my, my partner's emergency medicine physician. I, mean, I mentioned we had three kids. And, you know, during the pandemic, we actually just moved to, to Colorado from New York City. And, you know, I think about that every single day. Think about how different... Our, child's, our children's childhood is and their relationship to technology um, and, and yeah. as compared to how I grew up and how maybe you grew up as well. Um, we, didn't, we didn't even have email <laughs> back then. So I would just say it is, when I think about it from a science perspective and we do a lot of neuroscience training, you know, the brains are forming um, from, you know, that, that those early childhood moments. You think about your phone and how kids are interacting with, with smartphones and tablets and everything. We work on our, on our devices. We learn on our devices. Kids are gaming and connecting throughout the pandemic on their devices. You know, FaceTiming grandparents, all sorts of things. So there's a lot of positives to it, but it doesn't translate. Um, it's not a one-for-one -one for the relationships that need to be in children's lives, the sort of in-person connections, the attunement, um, the, you, see, you hear the tone of my voice even through radio, right? But a text message is not going to send that message to you. So we are studying that actively. This is one of the areas of discovery and digital innovations and the impact of technology on the developing brain for children. I mean, I think this is an area where we're all, all of us in society, you can't help but think about what is this doing for our children, both the positive benefits and also some of the, the negative uh, parts of this that we really need to be cautious of uh, as a society and as parents. Yeah. Uh, th there has been a major effort to destigmatize mental health, especially for children, but, but sometimes the stigma persists, especially for parents who are afraid of being seen as bad parents. I mean, that, that is a failing of some sort. How do you address that as a pediatric mental health expert, the, the parents? hundred oh, percent. And I think you know, it, I think as a parent, um, anytime our child are, is suffering or children are suffering, I think the first thing a parent thinks is like, did I do something? You know, and, and, and there's a fair amount of guilt, right? I, I think regardless, and I think particularly around mental health with the stigma across, uh, across communities, right? I come from a Taiwanese American family, immigrant family. There was a lot of stigma around talking about mental health issues. And even when I decided to go into psychiatry, there's a lot of stigma. And, you know, my family is actually incredibly supportive and an advocate for mental health because we see, you know, also the power and the impact of being able to talk about these things without that level of, of, of judgment or stigma. What if we spoke about depression and anxiety and learning issues in the same way that we speak about 
asthma or fitness or diabetes, right? Where we know there's genetic uh, factors, we know that there's uh, neurochemical factors, we know there are environmental factors and that uh, social conditions play a role, right? What if we treated these challenges as we treat other things in medicine and in healthcare? Um, and just make sure that our children have the best supports and the best care possible and the best interventions at the right time, right place with the right people, including the family. I think that we think a lot about families, actually. And, and yeah. so really having families be part of this conversation, destigmatizing um, and, and helping them sort of access supports that feel uh, culturally responsive and attentive to their family's needs and, and that they know that they're, we, you know, that you know, that we, we treat mental health issues in the same way that we treat other health care challenges in, in, in a, child, a child's life. Doctor, I, I want to get back to the, the social media aspect of things, because I'm also thinking about, you're talking about how there is this this dialogue happening. Um, I'm seeing on Twitter and TikTok uh, younger people having these raw and emotional discussions about um, their lives, about mental health. And, and I think it's almost like bringing the parents along with that, it seems. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. Like, if you think about, like, I might have what my older daughter is, uh, she calls herself a Gen Zer, I think the Zoomers, right? They are so yeah. much more advanced um, in the way that they think and talk about their emotions and their feelings and their mental health in general. Um, I, I learn from her every day and from my, all of my kids and all the kids that I'm seeing. They, they are leading the way in, in language. And I think part of their role as a, uh, a mental health care expert and you know and, and and provider as well as somebody who's thinking about systems is how do we create those spaces for kids to have those uh, supported positive connected experiences talking about their mental health because so often kids are in spaces where um, it can be also not positive for their mental health right that they're always feeling judged or not good enough or they're missing something mm. um, and it's not in that sort of caring supportive environment so i think there's a lot to learn from this younger generation. Um, there's a lot I think we need to store it as, as, as adults who care about children and their mental health as well as we think about these uh, social media sites and apps and all of that. Um, I, I want to talk about capacity for treatment with all of this discussion. How does this role that you have address mental health infrastructure needs for youth in Colorado? I, you know, I, I moved from uh, New York City uh, just last summer and uh, I think one of the most attractive parts of this role actually was the ability to think in a really big scope about all of the kids in Colorado and not just one subset or one population, but how could we improve the mental health and health care and well-being of, of all children in Colorado. Um, and we are, as CU School of Medicine and as Children's Hospital of Colorado, you know, work closely. I was just on a call with our state leaders as well um, about how do we coordinate our systems, how do we invest resources? Um, there's every level of government and uh, federal and state and local elected officials, every community organization, um, all of our primary care providers across the state and all of our school-based teams as well um, have the ability to really, really pivot and invest and align and, and have one conversation and a big investment in children's mental health uh, for the state. Um, so I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited to partner um, and to really think we have a huge mental health care workforce shortage. I think the other note about this position is that our mental health care workforce looks very different 
You know, it's made up of yeah. school counselors, right? Pediatricians, nurses, psychologists, social workers. It's it's all hands on deck. It's also coaches and parents and pastors and, you know, Girl Scout troop leaders. It's everybody. So It's a whole community I mean, approach, it sounds like. It is. Dr. Liao, yeah. we, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Dr. Liao is the mental health in chief for Children's Hospital Colorado. She's also the vice chair for equity and inclusion at the CU School of Medicine. What concerns do you have about pandemic anxiety? Email us, coloradomatters at cpr.org. Still to come, celebrating ice climbing in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mount Princeton was once an active volcano. When it erupted 36 million years ago, it sent a cloud of debris nearly 100 miles northeast to what is now Castle Rock. A 20-foot layer of pumice and ash covered the area. Some of this material turned into large deposits of erosion-resistant rhyolite. A few million years of flooding and scouring exposed the iconic castle-shaped butte that gives the city its name. Early people used the stone in arrowheads and spear points, but it's preferred as a construction material. Rhyolite quarries actually put Castle Rock on the map. The pinkish-gray stone was shipped around Colorado and out of state for use in foundations, veneer, and decorative trim. Today you can see rhyolite in a number of older buildings in Douglas County and in the sprawling Highlands Ranch Mansion, a modern-day castle, if you will, with hints of Castle Rock. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Copel and Company. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Every January, Uray draws ice climbers from all over to celebrate their sport. CPR's Stina Sieg checked out the 27th Uray Ice Festival. Crowds in bright puffy jackets cheer from the edge of the Uncompahgre Gorge, the gut-twistingly deep centerpiece of the Uray Ice Park. So close to Uray, you can actually see downtown from certain points in the park. A young guy with pink hair and an axe in each hand propels himself up what look like plunging chandeliers of ice. The clock runs out but he still wins second place. The Uray Ice Festival is a chance for elite climbers to show off their moves and for beginners to learn the ropes. Farther up the gorge, Risley Ectobanis and his wife are hiking with their baby, asleep in her carrier. We're definitely trying to get her into it. It's just, it's tiring to get her up there. <laughs> and they'll probably get one-year-old Liana walking first before getting her a climbing harness. The couple from Aurora had never ice climbed when they first came to the festival a few years ago. But Ectobanis says they keep improving with the help of people here. The community is just so well-knit. It's awesome. Everyone looks after each other. And this year, the festival drew about 2,000 attendees. Not bad for a community about half that size. I call the Erie Ice Park the gravitational epicenter of ice climbing in North America. Executive Director Peter O'Neill knows just how humble the ice park's beginnings were back in the 90s. Now, 
It's key to Uray's winter economy, which was almost non-existent before the park opened. It was the dream of a couple of localized climbers. I mean, literally, they ran garden hoses over you know, a couple of the cliffs. The park still makes every bit of its ice, thanks to what it calls its ice farmers, who've had to deal with warming temperatures and a growing park over the years. O'Neill says it now has 150 climbing routes. If you kept walking up that trail for a mile, there's routes off to your left almost the whole way. And the nonprofit park has always been free to the public, surviving off donations and fundraisers. It even stayed free after a huge nighttime rockfall last year caused more than $100,000 of damage. The park was able to crowdfund that amount in a matter of weeks. While ice climbing is definitely a niche sport, this place aims to get more people into the fold. A bit away from the gorge, newbies in harnesses and helmets pick their way up what's called the kids' wall, though it still looks pretty imposing to me. Colorado Springs resident Y. Mason gets ready to belay a young woman. Do you know how to tie in? Well, do it, girl. Over there. Mason, whose family's from Cape Verde, off the coast of Africa, has been ice climbing for seven years and gets a lot of energy from helping people start their ice climbing journey. That's why I'm here, to empower people, especially people of color. Because even though the ice festival is more diverse than Uray itself, it's still pretty white. Mason knows what a big difference ice climbing can make to someone. She used to be scared of heights and remembers the very moment she busted through her fear. The first time I climbed in the Uray Ice Park, a 100-foot wall, I'm like, wow, I can do this. And so other people can do it. There's a long line of people waiting to try ice climbing. And so often, after someone conquers their first climb, they have this big smile and shining eyes. It's fun kicking a wall of ice. <laughs> and it's easy to get hooked, says Mariah Bell from Denver. Eight-year-old Cecilia Rootson from Montrose offers this advice. Hit it in their heart with your boot and your axe. So I decide to try it. Though it takes me a sec to learn how to walk in crampons, those imposing spikes strapped to your feet. I only fall twice. Finally, with the help of a few kind volunteers and a lot of instruction, I do make it on to that ice wall. With all the precision of a newborn horse learning to walk, I go about eight feet. But hey, there's always next year's ice festival. In Uray, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters. And thank you to our team who remain ice cold under pressure. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Have a great weekend. Yeah.